Per CDC statistics, autism affects 1 in 88 children. The last 20 years has seen immunizations implicated. The controversy is explored in the thoughtful book, The Panic Virus, the true story behind the vaccine autism controversy. We're joined on ReachMD Book Club by author Seth Manukin, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. So, so usually when you hear someone talking about vaccines and autism, someone really has a dog in the fight on this. How did you approach this? What was your take on the subject before you started your research? So I actually came um, uh, to this topic in a way that I think is a little bit atypical in that um, really the thing that prompted it was just conversations with my peers. Uh, At the time I started working on the book or at the time I started my research, uh, I was newly married but didn't have any kids and my wife and I were not um, planning in the immediate future to have kids. Uh, But we noticed that a lot of our friends who were having children or who already had young children um, were very preoccupied with the question of uh, vaccinations. And I guess there were two things about that that surprised me. One was that it had never been something that I had ever really thought about uh, in the same way that I never thought about needing to go to the dentist. Um, I remember hating getting vaccinated as a child, uh, but I never questioned whether I should or shouldn't get vaccinated. Um, And the other thing that really surprised me is when I asked my friends why it was uh, or how it was that they were making these decisions, ultimately, their answers surprised me in that a lot of them were saying, well, this decision just feels right to me. Um, you know, either it just feels right to me to, to get my child vaccinated or it feels right to me to delay this vaccine or to skip this vaccine. Um, and I, I, I was I, I sort of wrestled with why that struck me for so long. Uh, and what I came up with eventually was that it really encapsulated um, for me an issue of how we as a society and as individuals sort of decide what counts as truth. Um, You know, when do we listen to experts and and when do we kind of go with our gut or go with intuition? Um, So at at the time when I I started out my research, I had no idea – which, whose side's gut instinct, um, in terms of my friends, was actually correct. Uh, you know, it, it seemed totally plausible to me that there were some issues with vaccines, uh, and it seemed plausible to me that, that this was not based in reality. Uh, but I, it didn't matter to me one way or another where the evidence ended up. Um, in some ways, that was almost secondary to the way that I got into the story. So when was autism first described, and and how has that definition expanded over the years? Um, So autism was first described by uh, a a doctor named Leo Kanner, um, and I believe the year was 1943. Uh, I can actually check that right now. Um, But uh, when when it was described, and and actually for for most of its history, uh, it was defined fairly narrowly. Um, uh, and, and, and there were different reasons for this. But in, in, in Leo Kanner's paper uh, that he published, it was, it was described um, in a way that I think we would think of today as sort of classical autism. Um, people, uh, uh, primarily children, with um, severe social 
disabilities, um, difficulty connecting with people. Um, and over time, by the time we got to the 60s, uh, the 60s and 70s, um, there was a, a new kind of dominant paradigm through which a lot of the medical community viewed autism um, that was really unfortunate and I think colored the way that disease was treated for decades. Uh, and that was that autism was caused um, by emotionally frigid, um, ungiving mothers. Uh, and, and, and these women were termed refrigerator mothers. Um, this was a term coined by, by Bruno Bettelheim, uh, meant to invoke the fact that they were literally too cold to bring warmth to their children. Um, and, and the reason why that is so incredibly damaging, outside of the fact that it had no basis in anything uh, and, and was obviously completely wrong, is because you had a period of several decades where if you were a parent and there was something um, going on with your child, you would do anything not to get a diagnosis of autism um, because that was indicative of a very, you know, serious failing on your part, supposedly. And it wasn't really until the 80s um, and the 90s that this finally fell out of favor and, and, and people realized, uh, you know, both that it was a bogus theory and, and that there was nothing to, to back it up. Um, but that stigma affected autism studies for decades and decades. Uh, and in some ways, I think still kind of hangs over uh, the debates that we have about the disease. So, and, and the second part of your question was, was how has that expanded over the years? Um, and, and that's actually a whole other fascinating subject, and, and it's looking at the evolution of autism um, over time in, in the DSM. So, as I said, when Leo Kanner first described the disease, um, he described it fairly narrowly, uh, and over time, autism morphed into uh, a category of diseases called autism spectrum disorders, which at some point also included Asperger's syndrome um, and eventually came to also include uh, a category of diseases called PDD-NOS, um, pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. And one of the effects of that, of that, of, of the increase in the diagnostic criteria there is that if you look historically at the number of children who were diagnosed with autism, um, you see these incredibly severe spikes. Uh, and if you don't dig a little bit deeper, I, I think a very rational conclusion from those spikes would be, wow, there must be something going on uh, environmentally that is causing all of this. And it's not until you both look at the lengths that people would go not to be diagnosed, not to have a child diagnosed with autism um, for a period of decades. And then very soon after that, this incredible broadening of the diagnostic criteria, um, that you begin to see that it's not that straightforward, that, that, you know, in fact, if we use the criteria today, um, 30 years ago, 20 or 30 years ago, the number of children being diagnosed with, with autism or autism spectrum disorders uh, would have been much greater than it was at the time. So for the vaccine part of it, how did thimerosal get into vaccines in the first place? So 
Thimerosal is a, a mercury-based preservative, and uh, it was introduced um, into vaccines after one particularly horrible incident in Australia, um, uh, where because uh, a, a, a vaccine was um, uh, because it was there was not a preservative in it, a, a number of children um, became incredibly sick, and 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 several died, um, and so for decades and decades. Preservatives have been used in 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 vials of multi-dose vaccines, and um, thimerosal was one of those preservatives, and was a, a very effective preservative. Um, the issue with thimerosal is, of course, that it's a mercury-based preservative, and. What happened, in, and this is getting a little bit into the kind of political backstory here, but um, in the late 1990s in this country, uh, there was a bill that had nothing to do with medicine or vaccines, um, a bill just about mercury and the environment generally. But one of the effects of that bill was that um, uh, the, the government had to tally up the maximum amount of thimerosal that a child could potentially receive if that child got all of the possible thimerosal-containing vaccines. And when that number was added up, it turned out that it was greater than what was considered safe for a different type of, of mercury. Um, and that, in fact, no one had run, had run the data or done studies on what safe levels were for this type of mercury. Um, that's a distinction that I think for the greater public uh, seems somewhat academic. Um, you know, for, for anyone involved in science and medicine, uh, you know the difference between, you know, ethyl alcohol and methyl alcohol um, is, is, is quite real. Uh, and in this case, we were dealing with ethyl mercury versus methyl mercury. So as a result of this, of this realization in the late 90s, um, the CDC, in conjunction with the uh, AAP, made a decision to recommend taking thimerosal out of vaccines immediately um, before any studies had been done. Uh, um, and their rationale was, and this is a direct quote, um, to make safe vaccines even safer. Uh, I think that was a spectacularly poor piece of communication <laughs> on, on, on the, the CDC's part, um, because if you're a parent and there's something that you're being told to give to your child and you're told that it's safe, I think generally you don't hear that and think, oh, okay, what they mean is there's a gradation of safety and I'm about to learn that it's not as safe as some other variation of this. Um, so the immediate effect of that in, in the late 90s was uh, the, the launch of what remains a, a very vocal movement um, ascribing blame to a number of different diseases and disorders, autism being one of the prime ones, um, to mercury in vaccines. One of the things that's so interesting about that is mercury has now been gone from all standard childhood vaccines for a decade, um, with the exception of some variations of the flu vaccine. So if, in fact, mercury, the, the thimerosal in vaccines had been leading to this increase in autism, then when it was removed, uh, you would assume that there would have been a sudden decrease, and that has definitely not been the case. Um, the, the rates, uh, the diagnostic rates for autism and autism spectrum disorders have continued to go up in the years since thimerosal is, was removed from pediatric vaccines. 
You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. We're speaking with Seth Manukin, author of The Panic Virus, The True Story Behind the Vaxism Autism Controversy. Seth, who was Andrew Wakefield, and, and how has he con- contributed to this controversy? So Andrew Wakefield uh, is a British gastroenterologist, um, and in 1998, he was the lead author on a study in The Lancet, a case series study of 12 children. Um, uh, And in the paper, he claimed to have identified a potential link between the measles virus um, uh, and the the measles vaccine, by extension, uh, and a particular type of gut disorder, and then this gut disorder and autism. Um, The paper from the outset was incredibly controversial. It was rejected the first time it was was submitted to The Lancet. Um, When The Lancet did finally accept it, they only ran it on the condition that um, it appear under a heading of early report, so to to make clear that this was not definitive um, data by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, The Lancet also invited two CDC scientists to comment uh, on the paper, and anyone who who reads medical or science journals knows that typically when a journal invites a commentary about a study, it's to say what an incredible study that was. Um, This commentary uh, in 700 incredibly lacerating words um, essentially said this is one of the worst studies that has ever been published. Uh, So that was the, the sort of background to the study that Wakefield published. Then even after it was published, he went much further than that and went on this sort of press blitz where he was telling reporters and anyone who would listen that parents should not give their child the three-in-one measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, um, that uh, the government owed it to its citizens to pull the vaccine off the market until a full safety review could be conducted. Um, this, the effect of this in, in the U.K. was an immediate drop in MMR uptake rates. Uh, and the U.K. does not have uh, mandatory vaccine school-age requirements the way the United States does, for the most part. They, they usually have recommendations. Uh, and so uh, the MMR vaccine uptake in the U.K. went from the 90s, the low 90s, to the high 70s. Um, and not surprising to anyone who knows anything about virology or, or has dealt with measles, um, uh, measles epidemics started to occur. And uh, in the years since then, there have actually been deaths in the UK from from measles, which is pretty shocking uh, when you think about it. Um, in the years since then, Wakefield has kind of thrown his lot in wholeheartedly with a very rabid anti-vaccine crowd. Um, I think one of the reasons that is is because he has been so totally debunked by, by mainstream science and mainstream medicine that he has nowhere else to go. Um, as an example of this, it turned out that the 12 children that he wrote about that he claimed were consecutively referred to his clinic were, in fact, uh, referred, some of them were referred, by a lawyer who was working with parents who were thinking about suing vaccine manufacturers. Um, it also turned out that Wakefield was receiving money from this lawyer. 
Uh, it, it also was discovered later that Wakefield had taken out a patent for an alternative measles vaccine right before his paper was published. So essentially, at the very moment that he was telling uh, the press, don't give your child the MMR vaccine, he had a patent on an alternative measles vaccine, which would be just the type of thing that parents would want um, if they thought the MMR vaccine was not safe. Uh, um, he also was shown to have fabricated some of the data in his paper. So, um, you, you know, essentially what started out as something considered one of the worst papers ever published, even before anyone knew that there were any problems with it, uh, was shown to be an, an almost complete and, and total fraud. Um, that paper has since been retracted by The Lancet. Uh, Andrew Wakefield has lost his medical license um, in the UK, uh, but he remains somewhat of a, of a hero to um, anti-vaccine, anti-vaccine groups. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any or part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thank you for listening.